I want you to stay here in 1 Timothy, but I do want to bring up what we've been looking at. So if we could go ahead and go to Ephesians 4 on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But I want you to see how Christ is filling all things. Now that he is resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is simply awaiting the time when all of his enemies will be made his footstool, and he will ascend the throne of God, and he will rule literally, politically, theocratically, on earth, from Jerusalem, on the throne of David, for a thousand years. It is a future time of glorious celebration that is going to take place after seven years of absolute hell on earth known as a tribulation. Now, thankfully, believers in Christ are going to be raptured out of that situation. We have not been destined for God's wrath because that's what seven years of tribulation is. We have been saved. And that means we have been saved, we are presently being saved, and we will be saved, and it's guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. So what is he, what's he doing in this intermediate time? He's working on filling all things to culminate to that point. And one of the things that he's done is he's given gifts to the body of Christ in the form of offices. He's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And last week, we looked at what is a pastor. So let's refresh that for just a second so that we kind of get in our minds what we're doing, and then I'm going to give you a twofold idea of what's happening. Our definition for pastor, please. One who is called to the soul care of God's people. Why soul care? Because your soul is made up of your heart, or forgive me, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Those are the parts that want to waffle between righteousness and unrighteousness. If you believe in Christ, you are saved. However, our soul, our life, we still want to make sinful choices. Now don't tell me that's not you, we just got done doing 1 John 1, 9, so we know that we all qualify in that situation. And those things manifest themselves out of our body. So the goal of the pastor is to administer the Word of God in such a way that rescues our mind, will, and emotions from making further sinful choices. That's the goal. All the derivatives of this Word involve leading, guiding, protecting, caring for, and nurturing. Does anybody remember what the word pastor is commonly translated as? Shepherd. This point in Ephesians 4.11 is the only time it's ever called pastor. All the other times this Greek word is called shepherd, and that's exactly what takes place. Now, if you would, take your Bible and turn over just a couple of chapters from where you were to to chapter 4. If you see me wandering around and not using my Bible for some reason, I haven't abandoned the faith, okay? But I, I printed out my text today, and I've worked through it on this, so that's why I'm going off of this today. We're doing two things today. Number one, I want to give you an example of what is the responsibility of a pastor in relation to the people of the body of Christ. And the best place to go for that is the pastoral epistles. You have First and Second Timothy, and you have the book of Titus. And so we're going to see an unfolding of instruction that Paul felt was valuable to put into Timothy's hands so that he would be able to be faithful in his ministry and see the desired results out of the body of Christ that would most glorify our Savior. The second thing I'm going to do is preach to you the contents in the middle of it so that it would also hopefully benefit us. So we're going for a win-win here, okay? Now I'm going to say this. The things that I'm going to explain today, and I'm going to show you clearly where they're at in God's Word, are going to be hard for some of you to digest and accept. And some of you might get angry, and I'm okay with that. But I think it would be wrong that if you're going to have a a, a reaction that is negative to what I'm going to say, that you would at least come and talk to me, either after our baptism today, you can take me to lunch, or... Or tomorrow, you're more than welcome to come in and visit, however you'd like to do it. If you look on the back of your bulletin, there's a phone number and my email address. If you like, contact me. But be willing to sit down face-to-face with your Bible open so that we can sit down and work through this. Okay? My goal is that we would have a pure heart, a good conscience. 
Anybody know the last one? A sincere, sincere faith. First Timothy chapter 3, Paul just got done giving instructions on elders. And he just got done talking about deacons. And he gives a listing, and I don't have this up on the board, but he gives a listing of some things that are very important that would be considered stalwart truths, basic understandings, things that we would hold on to that are foundational of having right thinking about the faith. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, since everybody brought their Bibles today and nobody needed one, is look at chapter 3, verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh. Stop. Who's he? Jesus. Jesus is revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated in the spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Notice we have the revelation of God in the flesh. We have him both being humanity and also deity, and we have an emphasis upon his ascension. Verse 1, chapter 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now let's break this verse down. The Spirit is the revealer of truth. He is the Spirit of truth. He's the comforter. He's the one who guides us or leads us into all truth. How is it that we have the Word of God? We are told that men were carried along by the Spirit. That's how the Word of God comes forward. It's what we know as the doctrine of inspiration. And so they documented that for us to have the New Testament. He explicitly... He expressly, he precisely says. In other words, he wants to be very exact with no wiggle room about a certain subject. That in the latter times, so notice it's giving us a time frame. In later times, some will what? Fall away. away. We would look at this as the idea of apostasy. This is the idea of what it is. We, We like to use the old southern term, backsliders. We know some backsliders from the faith. Now, I can say that because I'm from the South. You can't say that. It's discrimination, okay? (laughs) Making sure you know. But the idea is they gave up and stopped clinging to the truth. Now, the interesting thing about falling away from something is that you have to be at something in order to fall away from it. There's a lot of confusion that goes with people saying, well, are are they believers? Are they saved? Well, if they fall away, they show they weren't ever really saved to begin with. Well, maybe. I don't know if there's any way that we can examine the heart. That's not our business. But one thing I do know is that you have to be at the faith to fall away from the faith. They say, well, the situation was they lost their salvation. Well, that violates the whole term of eternal life. Eternal life is forever, and it's a free gift from God given by Christ alone. So no one can lose their salvation. They either have it or they don't have it. But very much so, believers in Christ can choose to abandon it and walk away from it. Will they still have eternal life? Yes. Will they have a good showing at the judgment seat of Christ when they give an account for what they've done in the body, whether good or bad? No. In fact, it will be a time of profound shame before the King of Kings. That's the whole reason why the judgment seat of Christ is there. To help us understand that there is great gain for godliness in our lives. But if we walk away from the truth after having know it, we are actually considered worse than an unbeliever. Why is that? Because there was so much potential, and Jesus did nothing but set us up for success, and we walked away because we love self. Self is the greatest obstacle of living a life that is worthwhile, that is worth living. So in the later times, some will fall away from the faith. How does this happen? Well, watch this. They pay attention to something. What does that mean? It means turning your mind in a different direction. It's the idea that your thoughts have now been consumed with something other. Truth has been replaced. It better be a darn good substitute. But it's been replaced for something else. And what I've often found anytime that I've talked to people who have fallen away from the faith, it's always replaced with something that satisfies them on a carnal level. 
It's not anything that gives peace. In fact, you find up there having to mop up a lot of messes around it. But it's something that appeals to the flesh. It's something that tells me that sin is okay. Now let me go ahead and be very clear. Sin is never okay. Our original position was with the Creator. Was it not? I mean, he spoke with Adam. They hang out, have a good time. Cheeseburgers, Texas Hold'em, I don't know. But they're having a good time. Cards are not evil. Amen. Calm down, Baptist. Anyway, but they're not. But then sin comes into the picture. And all of a sudden, Adam finds himself hiding from the one that he always wanted to hang out with. Now, that's a problem. That's something mentally skewed, and sin has come in and is the great divider of our original place with the Creator. So sin is what is moving this changing of mind. Now be very clear about what Paul calls these things. Remember, the Spirit is precisely, expressly, explicitly saying this. Look what they are. And if you need to, mark them so you don't forget. Because everything that flows from this is rooted in these two things. Number one, they are deceitful spirits. In other words, they're supernatural, celestial, fallen beings that are trying to trick you. That's the amazing thing about deceit. You don't realize you've been deceived until you're well past the line, right? You get out there and you look back and you're like, oh, that was bad. Not a good time. What does that? Supernatural things. It's not just about someone tricking you. The second thing, in doctrines of demons. Doctrines, teaching, instruction. instruction. Doctrine by itself is not a bad word. We believe in sound doctrine. Later on, we're going to see the word sound doctrine. It means whole, holistic teaching about the truth. But here, it's doctrines of what? Demons. Make no mistake about this. See it clearly for what it is. Deceitful spirits, doctrine of demons, getting the attention of people, focused on that direction and moving that way. Everybody with me? Verse 2. By means of, here's how it comes about, here's the, here's the pathway or the doorway of which that introduction happens into our lives in order to get our minds off of that and onto evil things. By means of the hypocrisy of liars. In other words, people who are going to lead in this way are number one, not telling you the truth, and number two, they're hypocrites. They're putting on a face other than what is real. They're leading you in a way other than what is right. It says that they are seared, and that's very interesting. You would know that Greek word, cauterizazo. Man, that's difficult. But we know it from what? Cauterize. Anybody ever had something cauterized before? Yeah. And what is it? They burn it to the point of either stopping a blood flow and even to the point where it could be past feeling. That's the idea. The doorway into this lie, into these doctrines of demons, is promoted by hypocritical liars who have seared, look at this, in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. The idea there is the conscience, that which God gave you that throws up the red flags and says, don't do this, and throws up the green flags and says, do this all the time. Where we're told in Romans chapter 2 that when we are before the judgment seat of Christ, one of the witnesses that's going to come to the stand and either cheer us on or say, I told them and they just didn't listen, is your conscience. Your conscience is either going to excuse you or accuse you before Jesus. Isn't that interesting? These are people who have gotten to the point where if you took a hot branding iron and branded it to the point of not responding anymore. So notice that it's a mental affliction that was purposely pursued. Verse 3. Here are the characteristics of these false teachings. Men who, number one, forbid marriage and advocate, number two, abstaining from foods which God has created 
to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Two major problems that stand as distinctions of where this is going to lead in a false reality that is actually conjured by demons and deceitful spirits. The first one is forbidding marriage. Is marriage a good thing? It is. It is. I think I'm in the clear. It's good. Marriage is a good thing. To forbid it's a problem. Now let's be very clear here. In 1 Corinthians 7, it teaches two great truths. Number one, singleness is a gift. And not everybody is gifted to be single. But there's nothing wrong with being single. Nothing. I used to go, a long time ago, to a Bible college, 2004 or 5, and the president of the college would wake all the men up in the middle of the night and have them gather in the lecture hall. And he would talk to them probably between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. about how one of the primary purposes that God brought them here was to find a godly wife and to have a whole lot of kids. Notice he didn't wake the ladies up and tell them that, right? (laughs) Marriage is a good thing. But singleness is a good thing. In fact, we're even told that everybody who enters into marriage is going to experience difficulties. But the person who is not married can have one singular focus without any deterrent whatsoever. And that is serving Christ to the fullest. So there's nothing wrong with singleness ever. If anyone has ever shamed you or talked down to you about being single, that is not biblical. They bought into a lie. Forgive them for that and move forward in being single if God's called you to be single. The second thing that 1 Corinthians promotes is marriage is a good thing. And marriage is to be entered into for those who recognize that I don't want to have self-control as far as my sexual urges are concerned. So what do you do? You enter into marriage. What does God say? Woo! God loves marriage. God created marriage and the sexual relationship before Genesis 3 ever happened. So it's good. He blessed it. He tailored us and created us purposely to have those types of relationships. It's good things. But if you step into a situation and you are forbidding marriage in relation to what makes one pious or holy or close to God, it is a deceitful doctrine. It is a doctrine of demons. It didn't come from God. It came from Satan. Is that clear? Now, why do I bring that up? Because we have an entire belief system that has promoted this idea that certain holy people should not marry and abstain from marriage. And what have we seen from this? Rampant abuse in the church, pregnant nuns who are shipped away to another place, and that's a problem. The way to cure the problem is to follow the Word of God. The word of God is clear. Forbidding marriage for the sake of being closer to the Lord is wrong. Now, think about this for just a second. When we hear about those situations, well, they're not married to a woman because they're married to... Pause for a second. Whose bride is the church? Does that bother anybody? Because it says I got some guy in a collar trying to sleep with my Savior's woman. That's a problem. It doesn't come from the Lord. In fact, here's what's interesting. Up until the 11th century, priests were fully able to be married. But the problem was is that every time a priest died, their kids got their inheritance. So all of a sudden we have a council. We institute a doctrine, church rules. Don't want to argue with the church. You can no longer be married because you're now married to the church. And when you die, all of your real estate holdings go to who? Makes financial sense, doesn't it? Makes no biblical sense. Largest landowner in the world. Bill Gates is number two. Research that one. It's worth a Google. 
So number one, the greatest problem that we see is a forbidding of marriage. All kinds of problems that come out of that. Marriage is good. Marriage is godly. Marriage is condoned by the Lord. If you're called to be married, get married. If you're not, it's okay. Serve the Lord. How about the next one here? It says, an advocate abstaining from foods. You can't eat certain things. Well, if you're really holy, you're going to be this way. Now, we could take this to the extreme of saying, well, this is about fasting. If you truly know Jesus, you'll fast. If you really don't want to know what it is to be holy, you'll fast. Okay, cool. But is my fellowship with Jesus tarnished because I don't fast? No, it's not. My fellowship with Jesus is tarnished because I sin. So whether I'm partaking of a food or not partaking of a food is not contingent upon my closeness with the Lord, my walking hand in hand with Him. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Some people have even regulated it too, and again, we have this problem, eating fish on Friday. Right? Can't eat other things. Now let's be honest. Wisconsin's got it down. <laughs> with the Friday fish fry, don't you? You know. Real quick. Who has their favorite Friday fish fry restaurant thing? Who, who yes, we know. It's Friday, we're going here, right? You will run over somebody to get that fish. We know it. Good stuff. Then I will question your salvation in that, Jerry. Just kidding, I love you. But then you have this problem. If you want to be accepted by the Lord, if you want to be on this higher level with him, you won't do these certain things. It all becomes about what you do or you don't do instead of the one who did it all. Everybody see why that's a problem? Now, when it becomes about that, your acceptance or your rejection becomes about works and your performance. And if we have any problem at all as believers in Christ, we should say, where's the grace? Where is it where I can't do anything to save myself? or to grow in my relationship with the Lord. Instead, I'm casting myself fully on a reliance on Christ to be the difference for me. That's the answer. This comes against it. In fact, this is actually written before it was ever what we see it today in our contemporary context. This was what was formerly known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism held this belief that if there's anything physical in your life, it's evil. Doesn't matter what it is. If it's material, it's wrong. The only thing that is good is your own personal spirit. And you don't need a savior. You just need to come to a deeper knowledge of whatever. They never really say what it is. A deeper consciousness. Now we start thinking about Buddhism, Hinduism, those types of things. You just need to come to a deeper consciousness in order to be free and to set your soul free. But the body's bad. Is your body bad? I don't think so. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs> but in and of itself, the body's not bad. What about sin? What about sin? Is sin sin's bad? But is sin about my finger or is it about what's inside? Is it about my ear or it's about what the desire of my heart is? Everybody see how that's different? The body just manifests when the soul gets off kilter. My mind, will, and emotions want to do these things, and it outplays through my body. That's why soul care is so important. So anytime that I'm faced with this idea that I can't do certain things, or I need to abstain from certain foods in order for either God to love me more, for me to be closer, or for me to be accepted by a group of people, we know two things. A, it's a doctrine of demon. Two, it's not biblical. A and two, I don't know. But you follow me. Those are problems. Now, the great problem with Gnosticism, think about what you know from what we've looked at in the Bible. Everybody remember we talked about the word gnosko? We talked about having an experiential knowledge. That's what that Greek word means. Gnostic is spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism, okay? So it's got that knowing, knowledge, experiential knowledge tinge to it because it's all about having a deeper knowledge, a higher knowledge, a greater knowledge. All you need to do is go to St. Louis and enroll yourself in L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics program. Anybody ever dealt with somebody out of Dianetics? 
where it's messed with their mind trying to get a higher consciousness. I have. I used to work with Pizza Hut with the guy back in my glory days. He's on the cut table with that knife, scared to death. I'm making pizza like this, you know? Because, man, you could tell when you talk to him, it was messed up. We just got we just got to get out there, man. I think you're there, you know? You don't know what else to say in a situation like that. Totally devoid of truth because they're trying to reach for something. They can just breathe deep enough or smoke whatever they can get their hands on. Somehow they're going to get there. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. So abstaining from these things is dangerous. Number one, it leads to licentiousness. Well, just abuse your body and do whatever you want to. Sleep with whoever you want to. Gorge yourself. Gluttony is on the table. Why? Because the body's evil anyway. It's going to amount to nothing. So why not just take advantage of it in order to satisfy that deep longing inside of you? That deep longing is not called spirit. It's called sin. And it's used as an excuse to do what's wrong. The other part is asceticism. And asceticism is how much can I beat myself or deprive myself or deprive the body, starve the body out? Because if I starve the body out and I fast forever and I live in a cell somewhere where nobody can ever see me or up on a pedestal, which is weird when you have to go to the bathroom, whatever, right? Think about it, guys. People have done this in the past because they're closer to God. It's weird. It's true. But you get to that point so that you will finally unlock the cages and your soul can finally run free and you've reached your intended goal. Don't think that people don't believe this stuff today. Satan has found different ways to dress it up. He's found a different way to shroud it or to maybe blind us from it or we don't really get to the the core issue of what's motivating people in this direction. It's there. Anytime we've ever sat down, oh man, I got, uh, I'm not going to ask for hands, but some of us might have F-bomb problems. I get frustrated. Thank you for your honesty. It's good. You get frustrated. You break something, mad something, want to chuck it across the yard. Stuff just starts pouring out of you. And you know it's unholy, but here it comes. Right? And so what do you do? You get your rubber band because that's the way we fix it. Not going to say that anymore. Not going to say that anymore. Not going to say that anymore. Does that work? No, now you got bruises on your wrist. And you're dropping F-bombs because your wrist hurts. That's what happens. We're trying to discipline the flesh. We're trying to get superficial means of doing better and trying harder. And there's no grace in it whatsoever because it doesn't deal with the heart. That's the amazing thing about this. When people start putting out hoops for us to jump through, where's the heart? And where's the one who's going to change the heart by his grace? So notice, they forbid marriage, and they advocate abstaining from foods. And watch how Paul counteracts this. Look at the argument he gives. Which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who, number one, believe, and number two, know the truth. Now this is very interesting. Paul wants to counteract a works righteousness idea that comes from earning it, the doctrine of demons, and he wants to say, wait a second, go back to Genesis 1. God created these things for your sustenance, for your enjoyment. This is what makes eating off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so odd to me. There were so many trees there. Why that one? Sin. Sin wanted it. That's why. Notice what he says here. They're to be gratefully shared in. You know what that talks about? Attitude. See, my mindset about the things that God has blessed in my life has a lot to say about the praise that comes forth in receiving it, in accepting it, in saying, thank you, God. I've recently taken a a fancy to sourdough bread. We haven't eaten bread in years in my house. And all of a sudden, it's like, we can do sourdough? The next thing you know, it's like sourdough, right? (laughs) Toasting it, grilled cheese. You ever had a loaf of sourdough grilled cheese? You know what I'm talking about, and it's not sinful. Okay? I only ate one. I only ate one. You know, gratefully shared in. Gratefully. Thank you, God. Thank you for sourdough. 
Notice, for those who believe, for those who have come to faith in Christ, and so therefore you're in right relationship with God, and you're reverencing Him as the creator of all things, instead of buying into this evolutionary, everything came from matter, well, wow, what came out of that? Because everything is evil, only your spirit is good. Everybody see how all that mess of Gnosticism ties in? Establishing a creator knocks all that out and resets the conversation. Thank you, God, for giving this to me. By believing and knowing the truth. Now, why does he bring that up? I believe Paul brings that up because he's a smart aleck, I'll be honest with you. Who know the truth? What's he comparing it to? Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Everybody see that? What's he saying? They're ignorant of the truth. They're ignorant of the truth. They've got man-made requirements for what it is to be holy or righteous. They're not walking according to the Creator. That's a problem. Verse 4, here's your causal conjunction. 4. Everything created by God is what? Good. Gnostics don't believe that. Your body's not good. Yes, it is. Did God create it? It's a good thing. The sin is the problem. The body is not. In Genesis 1.31, God said it's good. In fact, over and over, good, 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 very good. So everything created by God is good. It comes from a creator. And nothing is to be rejected if it comes your way. Everybody remember when Peter had the vision, the sheet came down? There's all kinds of animals on there. And God said, kill and eat. And he said, mm, I'm a good Jew. We don't eat this stuff. God said, you ain't had pulled pork before? <laughs> no, Lord, it'll never touch my lips. God said, what are you talking about, Willis? Kill and eat, man. And it happens over and over and over. And eventually what you find out is, is God was using that to point to him, if I've created it, it's a good thing. The question isn't how you receive it. If you want to be legalistic and say, well, really saved people don't eat that, then you've created a false dichotomy that's come from Satan about acceptance and rejection. It's not where it's from. But notice, nothing is to be rejected if, everybody see the if? Here's a contingency. You shouldn't reject it, but there's something going on here. If it is received with what? Gratitude. Notice he brings up the attitude of the person again. It's all about your attitude in relation to it, and a good attitude can only stem from being plugged into the basic foundational idea, there is a creator over all things who has made all things, and all things that he made are good. So he says here, it's to be received with gratitude. Why? Because God's providing it for you. Verse 5, 4, it is sanctified, it is set apart. The word is hagiazzo. It's the idea that it's made holy by the means of the word of God and prayer. In other words, because God has spoken forth, we often think, well, word of God here, he's talking about the scripture. Well, yeah, maybe, but I think it has to do more with what God has said about a matter audibly speaking. It is good. And if this is why we pray at meals, yes? We're thanking God for what He's given us. Our prayers should be biblical in this. Thank you, God. We know that, right? God is great. God is good. Thank you for this. Amen. There it all is. It's almost like second nature of this is the attitude that we're supposed to have in getting this. So Paul's not telling us anything new. He's saying all things are on for you. Don't let somebody try to compartmentalize you and whether or not you're accepted or growing with the Lord. Those are not the means to go about it. Receive all things gratefully. Verse 6. And pointing out these things to the brethren. Now he's talking to Timothy here. By taking a moment and saying these things are heresies. This is religion and religion doesn't save. The only thing that saves is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So by pointing out these doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits to save people, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now watch this. Constantly nourished on the word of faith, God's revealed word, and of sound doctrine. In other words, a high level of teaching. I did some research on sheep and shepherds. Man, that was a trip. Because I wanted to know all about what do sheep eat? 
And the amazing thing was, anybody ever seen, I wish I brought pictures, I should have made pictures. Those little pink budded deals, they're real stringy and skinny, got the little bitty green leaves on them, and then they're like pink and budded, and it looks like if you touch them, you prick your finger. Everybody seen those? Those are the bonbons of the sheep world. They love that stuff. They will bypass a mile of grass in order to get to those. Other things they like, big, huge leaves. They love them. And they will bypass grass in order to get to it. Third on the list, grass. Right? But here's one thing that's interesting. Whether a sheep takes a liking to a particular thing in a field, they're always fed in the boundary of the field. You start to get into problems and start having to make compensations and overworry yourself when you start introducing things like oats into the situation. So anytime you're bringing in anything that's foreign, you run the risk of damaging the sheep. However, if you simply steward them through in the passage provided for them, you have no problem and they're nourished up just fine. Some of us might like prophecy. Some of us might like character studies. Some of us might spend 90% of our time in Psalms because we love the poetry of it. But regardless, we're all feeding from the exact same pasture, the exact same thing. There is no other means of nourishment for the church than God's Word. That's it. All of that is the seedbed of which things like prayer and worship and evangelism and impressing on and taking the great leap into teaching three, four, and five-year-olds in Sunday school. All of those things spring out of what we take in from the one pasture, the Word of God. So notice, they're nourished on the words of faith, that's what you put forward, and sound doctrine. Sound doctrine there means that it must be teaching of a high caliber. You must be able to instruct and preach your way out of a paper bag. You have to. It has to be such as to where people will hear and respond. Notice, what you have been following. You know what? It means that there's a pattern of obedience that's already been established. Keep going that route. One problem we have in the American church is we're always looking for the next biggest thing. The day we get a fog machine, worship is over. Okay? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Roxanne, you can continue to play your guitar and wear your tight pants up here all you want to, but fog machine, got to go. I know the desires of your heart. That's what happens when you comment on the sermon. All right, verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, with legends that have no weight, value, meaning. I think that's interesting. Because notice that he doesn't say, Timothy, make sure that you speak against all these things that are consuming people's speech. He doesn't say that. He says, just avoid it. Set it aside. Let me ask you a question before you sit down today and, and we begin to start. I welcomed you. What were the contents of your conversation with the people around you? Now, I don't want to know. Don't, don't tell me out loud. But do we have a regular place of our conversation because we're all united in Christ? So where we're conversing about all the great things he's doing in our life, I guarantee you this, he wants to do them daily. Are we sharing them so that we're building up one another about what God is currently doing? Is that what consumes our speech? Are we so worried about, man, I hope he doesn't preach long because that sell at Coles is going on only until one. And I got to have a good showing at the baptism, so I guess I better show up. Have we gotten ourselves under this type of here's how I'm accepted or perceive my acceptance with people? Or is our speech consumed with the fact that the living God is actively working within the body of Christ doing great and amazing things? Talking about the opportunities we had where he opened wide doors where we were sharing the gospel this past week with somebody. We had the chance to talk to them about sin, righteousness, and judgment. We got to introduce them to the Savior. Is that what consumes our speech? I would wonder, and I think it'd be good for us to maybe think about it, if whether or not maybe we bought into worldly fables and what we talk about. Notice what it says, have nothing to do with worldly fables that are fit only for old women. Oh my gosh! Some of your translations say old wives' tales. Now is that discrimination? It's not discrimination if it's true. Oh, 
Think about it. Think about a Christless older woman. What is her conversation consumed with? It's always about the National Enquirer and when she's going to get that next pack of smokes, isn't it? Let's be honest. There's always this idea of, I don't have God in my life, and so therefore I have nothing beyond this life to live for, and so I'm all wrapped up in the drama. And Whoopi Goldberg is going to tell me how I ought to think about everything. You groan because you have Christ. She has nothing else. I don't think Paul's off base here. When you talk about people who are Christless, what do they have valued in their life? He's not telling us anything that's wrong. He says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. This is the only time that Greek word is ever translated discipline in the New Testament. It's actually translated train all the other times. Training. Getting ourselves into a routine, getting ourselves into a daily in and out to where godliness is our goal, wanting to be more like Christ, going through in the Word and submitting to it, getting involved in a Bible study, excuse me, if we don't have one, showing up to prayer meeting and seeking the Lord's face on things, starting to realize that all this idle time where I can't just leave my phone alone, I've got to be doing something all the time. We wonder why we're so anxious in our society today. First thing we do when we shut our phones off is we look at it to see if it might by chance be on. You laugh because it's true. We are an addicted people. Instead, train yourself for godliness. Does God want to do good things in the body of Christ? Yes. So here's a question. Are we seeing them? Is he doing them? Why are we not hearing more about them? Because at some point in all of our lives, there becomes an honest assessment of worldly things and rejection so we would recognize that Jesus Christ is worth centering our entire lives around because anything that is of value or worth whatsoever came from him to begin with. Are we training ourselves in godliness? That's the right way to go. Don't get wrapped up in all this meaningless conversation. Don't get so fretting about people's Facebook posts. We are an idolatrous and entrenched world, and the church is falling hook, line, and sinker for all this garbage. We've been called to better. We've been called to love people like they need to be loved and have never been loved. Because we, only, we have the only source of love. God giving his life for you and me, that's worth talking about. Set up a routine and train yourself for godliness. Verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, all you Levita member holders. Right? You go there, you work out, you're hoping for better, you're sweaty and stinky, need a shower? How to do? Let me ask you a second, a, a question. How does somebody's life end? There's only two ways. Number one, the Lord says your time's up. Number two, you sin and cut it short. There are some sins that lead to death. Promiscuity, you contract HIV, goes into full-blown AIDS and you die from it, guess what? That's you, not God. You sinned. That's the direction it went. Or you could be like Moses, who nothing was wrong with him whatsoever, even though he was 120 years old, and God just said, you're done. I'm digging your place right now. That's it. God's the one who controls how long the lifespan is. Or we control it by how we sin against him. But, here's the alternative. Godliness... Is profitable for what? All things. Church, what's the word all mean? All. It means in every area of your life, doesn't matter what it is, when godliness permeates into it, it automatically elevates it into a greater realm. Automatically. I don't care if it's your marriage. I don't care if it's your 
family reunion. I don't care if it's your work environment, people you go hunting with, catching deers. I don't care. I don't care what it is. If godliness is the routine of the routine of how you're getting trained in your life, and you've centered it around Christ, everything is elevated. Why? Because it all becomes a life lived in praise to His glory. Work out all you want, but if our physical exertion has overcome our spiritual exertion, we have a priority problem. Instead, godliness manifests itself out as benefit in all areas. And look how he moves into this. Since it holds promise for the present life, right now, your sanctification, you being further set apart for the purposes of God, and look what it says right after this, and also for the life to what? To come. There's your goal. Living now with the end in mind. Right now, my favorite pastor ever used to say this, right now is training time for reigning time. That's the idea. And for those believers who are not training in godliness now, they will not reign with the Savior when He returns to establish His kingdom. They'll be there, they'll be in bliss, but they will not have responsibility and they will not be lavish with reward. They will not hear, good and faithful servant, well done. Not every Christian hears that. The faithful hear that only. Now look how he moves this in in verse 9. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Verse 10, for it is for this. What is this? The life to come. It is for this that we labor, that we have toil, and we exert ourselves in this life, and we strive. Very interesting word, strive, because it's the idea of people constantly making fun of you and slandering you. It's the idea when someone wants to speak crass words against you for being a believer in Christ. Remember this. That stuff is building you up for a greater glory in the life to come. Because, why? We have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men because Christ died for all people, but especially for believers. Why is it? Because only believers have eternal life and forgiveness of sin. Unbelievers don't. Did Jesus die for them? Yeah, he did. So why aren't they going to be in heaven with him? Because they did not believe. That's why. They did not respond in faith. Verse 11, prescribe, command is what it means, insist regularly upon, and teach, give formal instruction on these things. Let me ask you a question from verse 10. Number one, you see that Paul gives instructions of how a pastor is to dispense his ministry from the Word of God. Does everybody see the mechanics of that going through here? Teach on this, watch out for this, see this, prescribe this, move in this direction. He gives those things. But in verse 10, a good application point. It says, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Let me ask you a question, honestly. Don't answer out loud. This is just for you. Have you done this? Have you fixed your hope on the living God? If that's the case, is that what you are laboring and striving for? Is that what you are exerting yourself in this life is just to know Him more, to know Him more, to know Him more? Just to have our minds more trained by the Word of God so that we are able to look at situations, discern them more properly, and either rescue people who are going in that direction and call them to come face-to-face with their Creator, or to encourage those who are moving in the right direction and build them up. There's no room for hatred in the midst of all that. That would not be in fitting with the goal of love. But love is our goal. And I hope that every single person in here has come to a point where they recognize If I have a hope outside of this life, it needs to be fixed upon the living God. You may be here today and you're not a believer in Christ. Let me be very clear but very loving to you. You have no hope. You have no hope. When you close your eyes to this life, where are you going to go? Nothing good. Nothing up. Nothing positive. And people give reason upon reason, none of them good about why they don't know the Lord, why they won't trust the Lord, why they won't focus on the Lord, why they won't commit themselves to the Lord. What has God ever done to us that's been bad? When Jesus died on a cross, He didn't sit there and go, 
Thanks a lot, guys. Did he? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There are no negatives in Jesus Christ. Are you someone who has fixed your hope on the living God? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Clearly showing us where pitfalls could lead us astray, causing us to fall away from the faith. Instead, you are the almighty creator, giving us all things that they're to be gratefully received. That all we need is the word of God. That we would be nourished on it, built up in it. That we would reject worldly chatter that has no value, that doesn't build us up, but further leads us astray. Father, I pray that we would walk in your ways and that you would teach us your truth and you would unite our hearts to fear your name. To recognize that we need to fix our hope on you, the living God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, dying for our sin, raised from the grave, ascended at the right hand, waiting to assume the throne. Thank you, God, that you've given us lives worth living that all the disappointments of this life are only framed in this life, that we have so much to live for beyond that. We have a hope that is everlasting and enduring. Thank you, God, that all wrong that we do is covered under the blood of Christ. If we have not believed, may today be the day of salvation, recognizing that we need a Savior. Because no matter how hard we try or work, or scheme, or plan, or save, whatever it is, we always come up short. Thank you that Jesus takes care of it. It's in his name we pray it. Amen.